Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, Tori Gorman and I go to the movies, an appropriate thing to do following the Oscars. We'll be looking at some fiscal policy aspects of a new documentary called Unrepresented, which deals with the influence of money in politics. Recently, the Concord Coalition hosted a panel discussion with the film's executive producer, Andrew Rodney, along with Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, who appears in the film, and David Walker, former Controller General of the United States. I joined the panel and Tori was the moderator. So in this week's program, we'll include key moments from that discussion. Topics include such things as why deficits should matter to the public, whether to go big or go incremental on deficit reduction measures, the need to pay for new initiatives, and we'll look at the pros and cons of a balanced budget amendment to the constitution. So let me welcome in Tori Gorman, uh, Tori, you were in charge of the questioning uh, on this panel. Some were yours and some came from the audience. And you started me off with a question about the infrastructure bill that's been proposed. Yeah, um, there was an interesting uh, moment in the film. There was an interview with, with former Congressman Justin Amash. who's an independent from Michigan. And he says something very striking in the film. He says that bipartisan means everybody gets what they want. Um, and he didn't mean that as a compliment. It was more a, a, a commentary on the lack of, of shared sacrifice in Congress. And, you know, right now we're, we're debating in an infrastructure package uh, in Congress. And there's a big push among Democrats to try and get Republicans on board and pass some sort of bipartisan legislation. But in this new world where bipartisanship is defined today, where everybody gets what they want, you know, should we be concerned as, as people who are concerned about deficits and debt, should we can be concerned that bipartisanship means bigger deficits and bigger debt? And that's where your answer came in. So let's take a listen. The usual bipartisan compromise or the more traditional bipartisan compromise is, well, let's take the Democrats spending agenda and combine it with the Republican tax agenda. That that's a bipartisan compromise. And of course, that would, that's what leads to unsustainable and rising debt. Uh, yes, we're entering a, a dangerous period with uh, huge negotiations going on. And as Maya said, totally outside of the context of a budget. Uh, we haven't even seen a budget from the administration yet. So, you know, we had the COVID bill, We've got the infrastructure slash care economy plan. We've got another plan coming up. Uh, none of it presented yet in the context of an overall budget, which is, you know, that's a problem. Um, 
but when you talk about negotiating the infrastructure, here's, here's one thing that, that I worry about. Uh, there's some talk about maybe splitting off the traditional infrastructure, uh, you know, roads, bridges, highways, wa water projects, that sort of thing. Because Republicans are more supportive of that than they are of some of the president's broader agenda, broader definition of infrastructure. So maybe we can get a bipartisan agreement if we sh if we if we focus on traditional infrastructure. They seem to to be agreeable to six to eight hundred billion dollars worth, which is a very large infrastructure mm -hmm. bill by traditional standards. But okay, let's say they can agree on it. Where, where they get hung up on is they can't agree on how to pay for it. Republicans aren't gonna go with Biden's corporate tax increase ideas. Uh, uh, Biden has said that, uh, well, Republicans will say they might go for some user fees like a gas tax or a my vehicle mileage tax, but, but they could, that could run afoul of Biden's uh, pledge not to raise taxes uh, on anybody earning less than $400,000 a year. So maybe they, they reach that moment of the, the bipartisan compromise where they say, well, you know, we really want to do this spending. We really want to have a big infrastructure bill. Let's just not worry about how to pay for it. And so, you know, we'll, we'll do that, that part of it later. So I do think that there's a very, uh, they're, they're all denying it, that this, that this could be the ultimate uh, outcome. But I think there is a danger that we could negotiate ourselves into just a, a huge deficit finance infrastructure bill. Yeah, scary. Dave, did you have? Yeah, I wanted to follow up real quickly yeah. on something that both Maya and Bob said. Uh, number one, the Congress has passed timely budgets and appropriations bills four times in my lifetime. Four times in my lifetime. It is an F minus. Okay. Uh, secondly, there's tremendous abuse now of the budget reconciliation process. Budget reconciliation was supposed to be used to expedite and to facilitate tough decisions to reduce deficits and debt. And it's been used in the 21st century to do exactly the opposite, by Republicans to get tax cuts that exacerbate the problem and by Democrats to get spending increases that exacerbate the problem. Uh, my latest op-ed in The Hill two days ago focuses on this. Uh, and, you know, the last thing is, is that we're spending all this money and there's no oversight. The Congress created a Congressional Oversight Commission for COVID. It's now spent several trillion dollars more. It's never appointed a chairman, and at least one of the other positions is vacant. So, you know, things are just out of control from a multidimensional perspective. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman. We're reviewing a panel discussion that we had on the documentary, Unrepresented. We'll be right back with more of the discussion after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman. We're uh, reviewing a panel discussion that we had on the documentary, Unrepresented, and our guests were Maya McGinnis, the uh, president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, former Controller General of the United States, David Walker, and the film's executive producer, Andrew Rodney. Tori was the moderator of this discussion. And Tori, the discussion that we're about to have now was really one of the highlights uh, 
because we got talking about the balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. I thought it was really interesting. We have you know people on the panel who have who have spent you know all their lives dedicated to uh, fiscal responsibility, but when you ask this question about whether they support uh, a, con- a a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution, you get a wide variety of answers. So let's listen. And this next question, I'm actually going to give to all of our panelists, um, because I'm sure everyone has got some thoughts to share on this subject. Uh, Several people on this panel have dedicated their entire careers to promoting fiscal responsibility in Washington. The movie mentions an example of a grassroots effort in support of a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. And at first blush, that might seem like a no brainer for folks like us, but as they say, the devil is in the details. So my question is, do you support a balanced budget amendment and what criteria would you construct around it? For example, there are some balanced budget amendments that prohibit tax increases, some that provide exceptions big enough to drive a truck through. Many states have balanced budget requirements, but their capital and operating budgets are distinctly separate and the balanced budget requirement just applies to the operating side of their of their ledger. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution? I'm going to start with Andrew, then go to Dave, and then Maya and Bob. Um, yes, I'm I'm very supportive of, but when we say balanced budget amendment, uh, you know, the devil's in the detail, even in that wording, where it is, um, you know, fiscal restraint, a, a phrase that um, Dave has taught me and others uh, very well. You know, fiscal restraint is, is really the goal. It's not about balancing annually. Um, to what revenues are uh, it is that which could cause unintended consequences. It's about uh, that you, you're restraining the rate of debt creation in proportion to the economy um, on over, over time with limited exceptions. And of course, there has to be um, exceptions. You know, war is a national emergency. I realize that, yes, Congress could always um, go against uh, that they could just declare a national emergency at any point to keep the restriction from being in place. But I think that when we talk about an amendment, we can never lose sight of the fact that an amendment is the result of a huge um, public movement supporting it. It's not something that, you know, a cabal or, you know, I mean, or just, just a majority of senators and congressmen are just going to introduce one day and it's just going to get passed uh, because they've, they've got this nucleus of support. It's, it's only going to happen when, when Congress is forced to do it. Um, and, that's, and that's why you know, the, the movement of states uh, to try and have their constitutional convention to call for, uh, a, a, have a convention that would put a, put a balanced budget amendment out there before the states to ratify um, is kind of the leading uh, initiative for it right now. And there's not much in Congress. They've, they'll debate you know, probably 70 or 80 balanced budget amendments this year that will go nowhere. In, in Congress. So don't, fo- you know, uh, yes, I'm a big supporter, but I always would say to people, don't focus so much on debating, you know, the details of a balanced budget, because what you need to do is to gain the overwhelming majority um, support. And and, the, and most people do support um, some sort of fiscal restraint, especially when you outline some of the details of it. So don't get lost in, in arguments about kind of the nuances or that, you know, that, that, oh, they could just over, if you put a national emergency exception, then they'll just overturn it. If the, if the overwhelming majority of Americans call for this and, and actually accomplish it and three quarters of states ratify it, that movement is what will keep uh, Congress honest. And, and that's going to be, have to be a, an eternal movement of, of trying to keep, you know, our, our representatives honest. So mm-hmm. that's my answer. 
Dave? I am not for a balanced budget amendment, but I am strongly for a fiscal sustainability amendment. What's the and difference? <laughs> what the difference is, is that, you, you know, we're not going to balance and we don't need to balance revenues and expenses on a day-to-day basis. What we need to focus on is debt as a percentage of the economy and interest as a percentage of the budget. So I believe that we need an amendment that focuses on those factors that sets uh, goals, targets, and triggers to be able to get debt to GDP down to a reasonable and sustainable period over a period of time. Uh, And if you don't hit it, that there are consequences for not hitting it. There would be very limited exceptions, a formal declaration of war, which has not occurred since World War II, although we've had a number of conflicts since then, okay? Or uh, certain events where there is a supermajority of Congress that that vote to override it on an annual basis. In other words, you know, you got to do it year by year, all right? I'm involved with two groups that are trying to call for a limited single issue constitutional convention that would be solely for the purposes of focusing on a fiscal sustainability amendment. Depending upon how you count the states, uh, if South Carolina passes a resolution, which we're working on right now, we either have 28 or 34 of the needed 34 states. The model that is being followed is the model for the 17th Amendment, which was uh, the direct election of senators, which got within one state of being able to call for a convention, which then forced the Congress to be able to do something because they don't want to lose power. They don't want to lose control. That's the model that we're trying to use. We don't need a convention, but we need we need pressure on the Congress such that if they don't act in a responsible and timely manner, uh, that it could be taken out of their hands. And interestingly, the president has no role to play whatsoever other than potentially using the bully pulpit on any constitutional amendment, whether it originates in Congress or whether it originates through a constitutional convention. So strongly for a fiscal sustainability um, amendment, not for a balanced budget. And by the way, 49 of 50 states have a balanced budget requirement, but we've got a number of states that would go into bankruptcy if they could, it's not allowed under present law because they define a balanced budget as cash flow, cash in, cash out. They don't consider huge unfunded retirement obligations. Uh, and, and as a result, they're in much worse financial condition, even though they have the audacity to tell their citizens uh, that they have a balanced budget. They're nowhere close to a balanced budget. Maya? Okay, I'm gonna give a really mixed answer to this because I'm of of two minds on what we should or shouldn't be doing. First point is uh, agreed. I don't think the right metric is balanced budget per se. It's debt as a share of GDP and the direction in which we are going. Um, So the most important thing is that your economy is growing faster than your debt. But um, so wrong metric, the idea of having fiscal objectives metrics, absolutely critical. It's insane that we have basically an open-ended budget process right now with no constraints. Number two, I'm not a fan of a constitutional change right now, because in this moment in history, it feels to me like we are rethinking everything from our core political systems to economic systems to, again, our loss of trust in each other. And I'm worried about the stability of the country. So it doesn't feel like the right moment to go and open up the Constitution. I'm not generally as opposed to them as I would just like to see things 
simmer down a little bit and for us to all get a little bit more on the same page. And that feels like a hard thing to do. I think it's really important that it treat taxes and spending equally. There are some people who think of fiscal responsibility as less spending. The way I look at it is you can have big government or small government and be either fiscally responsible by paying for what you want, offsetting new spending or tax cuts, or fiscally irresponsible by refusing to pay for those priorities, whatever they may be. Right. But I think the point of process is to put the size of government as a neutral and make sure that there's symmetry in how you treat these things. Um, I will say I've always been struck by the hypocrisy of people who talk about wanting small government and then try to get there by refusing to raise taxes when their pledge or their promise should be not to raise spending. That's what makes government big, not paying for the spending that you have. So that's just kind of an aside note. Mm -hmm. um, no matter what you come up with, it is important to have exemptions for emergencies, recessions, national disasters, attacks on the nation. But it's also important to tie that spending and borrowing at times where you should be borrowing, for instance, this past year, with longer term offsets. And so I think a budget process mechanism that requires borrowing in the short term be offset by pay-fors in the long term would also be a really helpful way to move forward. Um, two final points. I worry about how many people are big fans of budget, the balanced budget amendment, but refuse to say how they would fill that in. I almost think the price of admission for being taken seriously as you should, you should then say, and here's an example of how I believe we should stick to this re restraint. Because I worry a lot of people use it as an excuse not to focus on the actual policies. And then the final point in favor of, we have seen in countries around the world, those that are most effective in being fiscally successful take simple to understand metrics and have the entire country buy into them. And it is a lot easier for the country to say, balance the budget or balance the budget over the business cycle than it is to give them all bumper stickers saying, put the debt as a share of GDP on a downward path so that it is sustainable, right? So there's something about that public, we can all be behind this one metric that actually has proven to be very effective. So there you go. That's the biggest wishy-washy answer someone could have given. That's okay, Maya. I'm, I'm with you the whole way. Bob? Okay, I'll give uh, wishy-washy in a slightly different way. Uh, back in the 1990s, the Concord Coalition uh, did support a balanced budget to the Constitution, and uh, we were quite vocal in, in that. And one of the arguments that we used to make, I certainly made it, was that uh, the Congress would never be able to balance the budget without the backbone uh, injected by a process like a constitutional amendment to force them to do it. Uh, it turns out that we were wrong. Uh, there was a balanced budget in the late 1990s. Uh, we had a surplus for four years. So, you know, our founding co-chairman Warren Rudman used to say a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution was a bad idea whose time has come. <laughs> and uh, it, and our attitude about it now is it's a bad idea uh, whose time has come and gone. Uh, I think that um, I, I agree with all of what uh, Dave and Maya said about the importance of having a goal of debt to GDP. I think uh, it, that is the right goal. Um, uh, I, and I think there should be consequences, look back mechanism or something where um, uh, the, you know, the, you could enforce that sort of, you know, by a look back procedure. 
all of that, I think, should be done statutorily. It's it's not as strong as putting it in the Constitution, but to me, that 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 stuff is too um, detailed and specific for the Constitution. The Constitution, not being a piece of legislation, uh, is more about uh, general principles. Um, so I worry about putting something like that in the Constitution. The other reason I worry about it is I don't think it's, I worry about implementation and enforcement. For one thing, on the implementation side, we are so out of whack right now. Uh, on We're so far out of not just balance, but the debt to GDP ratio is much higher than any of us on this panel thought it would be uh, at this point and, and headed higher. So I'm not exactly sure where you would, uh, the, frankly, if you look at the numbers, the choices that we would have to make just to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio now are so very, very severe. I don't think people realize it. Uh, and um, so I'm not gonna go into them now, but just, I, I really worry about uh, the implementation. But the second thing is um, enforcement. Uh, I don't know how you would enforce it. Uh, would the minority party in Congress go to court to say that the majority had passed a budget that wasn't, I suppose they don't pass a budget at all. And yeah, who know, has standing? <laughs> the thing is on autopilot. Uh, so the, the lawyer in me starts looking about implementation and, and, and enforcement questions, and I'm, I'm not sure it would work. Uh, the other uh, final points on that are, it takes a long time to get a constitutional amendment adopted. Uh, I would like us to get, uh, I would rather have that time debating the hard choices that we need to balance, not balance the budget, but to get the, the debt to GDP ratio stabilized, rather than debating a process, a constitutional amendment, because even if we passed it, you still need to pass the, the, the tax increases or spending cuts that you would need to implement it. And, uh, you know, I, I just think our, uh, a better use of time would be debating the, the hard choices. As Rudy Penner, former CBO director, once famously said, the problem isn't the process, the problem is the problem. Right, right. I was gonna say, on Capitol Hill, we used to bemoan a lot when we were on the budget committee staff that there were there was no budget jail, right? There, there are all these requirements that you should do this, you shall do this in law, you sh you shall pass a budget resolution, you shall by this date, you know, and uh, they they just don't, and there is no consequence, there is no budget jail. So I I hear what you're saying. There um, has to be there has to be a consequence, and one illustrative consequence is that if you do have a constitutional amendment that has targets, triggers, and automatic enforcement mechanisms, and that would include both revenues and expenses if they don't hit it, all right, both sides of the ledger, and if they nonetheless violate it, then they could not stand for re-election. Ooh, interesting. Um, anybody want to comment on that? I, no? I, I, I would, the, the, who's going to bring the, the, the suit to the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to disqualify a candidate. It would be a constitutional provision. You wouldn't have to, you know, I mean, it's in the Constitution. And the, oh, and, and the Supreme and the Supreme Court is supposed to uphold the Constitution. So the whole idea is, is it would be it would be a provision in the constitutional amendment. I'm sure that the opposing party and all the more reason why you got to get it. You got to get the people to be behind it rather than the politicians, because the politicians wouldn't want to do that. All right. Andrew, you had a comment. I was saying I'm sure the opposing party or whatever representative that was constitutionally you know, barred from running would be quick to raise a suit to get that person 
to you know enforce that provision. Mm -hmm. But uh, my only point is we have due process of law, equal rights, uh, phrases like that in the Constitution. They are litigated. So whether the budget complied with the um, stated goal percentage of GDP, that would then become a matter of litigation. It's one of the problems with America. We have too much litigation. But, you know, it's the way I mean, you know, it, you can do nothing. You can do nothing, which we're very adept at. And look where we've gotten by doing nothing. Uh, I, you know, the, the politicians have to be there has to be some forcing mechanism for them to do things that they don't want to do. Uh, and we can debate what that might be, whether it's statutory, constitutional, order, but there's got to be something because the status quo just doesn't work. Yeah, well, we agree on that. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby and Tori Gorman and I are going through a panel discussion that we had on the documentary film Unrepresented with guest stars David Walker, former Controller General of the United States, and Maya McGinnis, President of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and Andrew Rodney, the executive producer of Unrepresented. We'll be back with more of the discussion after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and I'm here with Tori Gorman. Uh, we are um, bringing you some excerpts from a panel discussion that we had on the documentary Unrepresented, which deals with money and politics, but it also deals with the federal budget and fiscal issues and how those two are intertwined. And uh, Tori, you were the moderator of the discussion this um, the next uh, question that we're going to hear, I thought was really interesting, and you directed it to Maya McGinnis. So why don't you set this up? Sure. I, I think that, um, you know, given where we are now with the state of our federal finances and, you know, $28 trillion in debt, that, you know, exceeds a debt as a percentage of GDP, exceeds, exceeds the size of our economy. I think a lot of lawmakers in Congress have some buyer's remorse over failure of the 2010 uh, Simpson-Bowles National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. Um, but there's also some question about, you know, and that was a commission that literally swung for the fences. And there's some some concern right now whether or not the political environment that exists on Capitol Hill uh, is conducive to that type of a, of a commission again. And so I, I threw the question at, at Maya and let's hear what she had to say. Uh, Maya, I'm going to go to you on this one. Um, Simpson Bowles, the, the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, uh, was an experiment in the art of the grand bargain. Uh, everything was on the table, revenues and spending, taxes and entitlement programs, and it eventually collapsed under its own weight. In the film, you and specifically talk about the need to first address the division and distrust that now exists among lawmakers. You just in your opening comments, you talked about the three D's. Is it time now for Congress to stop swinging for the fences like they tried in, in Simpson Bowles and instead focus on small ball victories that sort of tinker around the edges of reform? Or are there better ways uh, to establish that sort of wellspring of trust and shared sacrifice that is so critical to making hard choices? Yeah, it's a really important question to figure out what things need to be done to lay the foundation for the success and fiscal measures. Because right now we are in a moment where our politicians almost always, and almost all of them, but not all, but most, put politics before policy, immediate gratification before the long term, uh, extreme purity of thought rather than compromise, 
and run away screaming from any tough choice. And that those are the things you need to fix the fiscal situation. And those are the things that uh, are, are the antithesis of this moment. So I think there are a number of things that need to change. Um, the unique thing about Simpson Bowles is actually they found it easier to have the sitting members of the commission get to yes, the bigger the package became. became. So once everybody felt certain that more things would get accomplished and you'd actually fix the problem and that everybody was part of the solution, there was more support, support even from the extremes, from Tom Coburn to Dick Durbin. Um, and there was an incredible amount of diverse support on this well, you know, how often do the New York Times and Wall Street Journal editorialize positively about something on the same day? Almost never. Um, and there was a good deal of support all through different communities all around the country. What I think the biggest issue standing in the way of Simpson Bowles' success was political leadership. You did not have the support of the political leaders. You did a Boehner, Obama to some extent, and Hoyer, but there are a lot of leaders who are unwilling to, to really support this. And you've got to pull apart the reasons that stood in the way of that. And oftentimes you find that ideas you're railing against, like, oh, they're trying to steal your social security. Oh, they're trying to raise your taxes are better for the parties than actually solving those solutions. So here's where I think we are. We do need to do a lot of trust building and a lot of bipartisan relationship improving. It is terrible right now in terms of bipartisan true relationships and trust on Capitol Hill. And, you know, you know this, Tori, everybody on this call knows how bad it is right now. We have to improve that. I wish it were a moment to, quote unquote, go big and put in place a deal that's big enough to truly address the problem. But the problem's gotten worse in this decade. And that deal would be so huge. I don't think there's any political appetite for it. So unfortunately, I think instead of going big, we are probably left with go incremental. And again, I think I'm the queen of bad bumper stickers on this on this discussion <laughs> because going incremental is not really inspiring. But one of the reasons I really like the Trust Act, which is bipartisan, bicameral, and that is one of the reasons I like it, but it takes each one of the trust funds that would be headed towards insolvency over the next 15 years and puts a commission on fixing that program in and of itself, not as a bigger part of the debt picture. And right now, that seems to have the most promise. I think we should look at all possibilities, another big debt commission, something about debt targets, but the Trust Act, which is a little bit more piecemeal, seems to be more doable at the moment. And again, I think people would have sticker shock if they saw how much you would need to have in savings to even stabilize the debt uh, where it is today, which is much too high. And that would be much bigger than any of the debt deals you've even, even contemplated. And nobody remembers how to bring the debt down. They only know how to borrow right now. So just starting with let's pay for things, let's stick to paygo, and good for the Biden administration for saying they want to pay for infrastructure. Now let's make that a credible package. But just starting with paygo would be a good start as well as looking at something like how to fix the trust funds, maybe a down payment. One final idea. I think we could put together a package that would offset the cost of the most recent $1.9 trillion economic bill. I think that's a number that we could get done. So maybe we go in small bites um, and compromise along the way. And those things should have both spending and revenues in them. Tori, you wrapped up the panel with, uh, with, I think, one of the key questions in all of this. Uh, why don't you tell us about it? Sure. 
Uh, at one point in the movie, the documentary Unrepresented, there is a, I think a Harvard professor, Professor Lessig talks about voter apathy and the politics of resignation. And so I asked the panel question, how do we get voters to care about federal deficits and debt? So let's take a listen. Um, so this question I want to ask to both Andrew, because you've been out in the field and, and Bob, you've been out on the field. Um, I worry that Americans are just too disengaged from politics and especially from budget matters to care about the problems that this film exposes. Uh, in the film, Professor Lessig specifically mentions the politics of resignation. Um, Andrew, you've been in the field. Bob, you run a grassroots organization. How do we help voters connect action or inaction in Washington, D.C. to their daily lives? And how do we get them to care about federal debt and deficits? I think you have to connect it to, you know, their daily life. You know, the reason that I got involved in this uh, was directly from uh, my experience with the last documentary, which is about the modern history of Detroit and why Detroit was experiencing so many local uh, problems and how many of those problems tie back to um, just the brokenness of our Congress and, and what allows for that to happen. And I, I think, you know, on a daily basis, people are struggling with housing, healthcare, education. Those are probably three of the biggest pain points that any American has to deal with. Um, the fast rising costs of these things, and they're directly tied to Congress's actions and inaction on these policies. They're making it more expensive in all these areas. And, and I've always felt that debt is a tough topic because people can't connect to it. They don't, they don't you know, most people, I mean, people, some people budget, a lot of people don't. Um, and, in, and then just thinking about trillions is pretty much an impossible concept. Um, so, you, so you have to look at, you have to point to their own personal uh, impact of, of why, you know, why is it that, you know, housing, education, healthcare have all just about tripled in 20 years? Well, it's because, you know, Congress is raising the cost of these things by subsidizing them so hugely and unaccountably. And even the wealth gap, you know, I mean, that is also, you know, they're, they're not taxing uh, to support the spending that they have and that, you know, impacts that. So, so find the issue that they care about and connect it back to, to how budgeting impacts it. Um, I think that one of the, this is, this is actually one of the most difficult uh, things about this issue, being concerned about this issue, because on any given day, uh, Deficit spending is 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 going to be uh, more attractive to people than than not. I mean, because these are the easy things to do politically is to increase spending on something that you might want or uh, cut your taxes. So uh, for for anybody who wants to make the case, it's easy to say this is you know the the debt is going to affect you today in a positive way by you know um, the, this sort of thing. So. I think that the, and what we try to emphasize is that what concerns you in your daily life should also be something about the future. Some corner of your daily life concern needs to be, okay, what, what happens today, but what happens down the road? If you're not at all concerned about the future, the future of your country, the future of your family, you're probably not gonna be concerned about this issue. But people that are concerned about things like uh, climate change or national defense that, you know, worry about things that, you know, it might not, you might not be able to say, you know, how is this going to affect me today? Um, they're still worried about it because they realize that uh, we have to have a sustainable future, whether you're talking about 
uh, sustainable in the fiscal sense or sustainable in the uh, environmental sense or sustainable as a national security proposition. I mean, what you need to have, uh, you need to have the confidence that the policies that you're put in place are going to last because no matter how good or well-intentioned the policies are, if what you've got is unsustainable, as we talk about it, if it's relying on perpetually higher debt, then you can look at the numbers and you can say, well, this is gonna all collapse. So how does that help? So I, I think what the trick is to be able to make uh, that the concern about the future is something that you do incorporate into your daily lives. And one analogy that I like to give, it's like health, talk about it like a health concerns. If you sit around on the couch, eating donuts, smoking cigarettes, you might have a great time. Uh, you, you know, I'll be able to do that for a long time. It's, and I can't tell you when that would catch up to you and you know, give you the heart attack when you stand up. Mm -hmm. But you know that over time, those are not healthy health habits. Right. So just as people should have healthy physical habits, people should have healthy fiscal habits uh, and that's one way to think about incorporating the future into the present. Dave? I think a key word is stewardship. This country was founded on a number of principles and values that we've strayed from. And one of the big principles and values is stewardship, which is not just generating positive results today and not just leaving things better off when you leave than when you came, but better positioned for the future. We are failing miserably with regard to that. And people need to understand when debt to GDP goes up, to unreasonable and unsustainable levels. That has a negative effect on economic growth. It has a negative effect on job opportunities. It has a negative effect on our ability to fund our military. It has a negative effect uh, in a number of different ways. And that's one of the things I talk about in my, new, in my book, American 2040, is you know, you know, we're living for today. We are absolutely mortgaging our future in a way that threatens our position as a superpower in the world and threatens our domestic tranquility at home. It is real. And when I was on the road, whether I be with, with Bob on the fiscal wake-up tour or on the 10 million a minute tour, uh, if you will, one of the last slides that I would typically use is a picture of my family, including my grandkids, because that's what it's about. I'm not worried about me. I'm not too worried about my kids. I'm very worried about my country and my grandkids. Absolutely. And if people don't care about that, they're never going to get it. Before we wrap up this edition of Facing the Future, I wanted to say a few words about the new census figures that were released this week. Much of the coverage has centered on the potential political consequences of the shifting demographics among the states. Which political party might benefit? Which states might gain or lose clout in Congress? Those are interesting and in fact, very important questions but we shouldn't overlook the economic significance of what's unfolding in slow but steady motion right before our very eyes. Here's the bottom line. In the last decade, this nation's population increased at the slowest rate since the 1930s and the second slowest in our nation's history. Factors include an aging population, declining birth rates, and lower immigration. It is a prescription for slowing economic growth, and that becomes all the more problematic when you consider the huge debt burden that we're passing on to the future. 
Here are some of the challenges ahead, as outlined in a joint Concord Coalition Global Aging Initiative paper called Macroeconomic Challenges of Population Aging. First, there's the fiscal burden. As the ratio of elderly to working age uh, adults increases, those fiscal burdens will rise. You can think of things like Social Security, Medicare, uh, parts of Medicaid. Then there's this, as the growth rate in the working age population slows, so will employment growth and GDP growth. Productivity growth may also decline and along with it, growth in uh, living standards. And as the electorate ages, it's possible that the social mood may come to be characterized by greater risk aversion and shorter time horizons. Finally, as America's population and economy grow more slowly, its geopolitical uh, stature could even diminish. The census report shows it's clear that we can no longer count on a rapidly growing population to fuel a rapidly growing economy to fund rapidly growing benefits. For most of its history, America was a demographically expanding society, rapidly expanding. Yet by the 2030s and 2040s, the growth rate in the working age population will fall to near zero. Beyond that, unless birth rates or immigration increases, the working age population could actually begin to contract. An aging America can still be a prosperous America, have no doubt but ensuring a positive outcome will require confronting the challenges posed by population aging. Doing so successfully will test our ability to change, adapt, evolve, and adopt more thoughtful policies that will help us cope with, uh, with the challenges ahead. Yet thankfully, that ability has always been one of America's defining characteris uh, characteristics. Thank you for listening to this edition of Facing the Future. I'll be back next week with another edition. This is Bob Bixby. Thanks for listening.